You will note that we are once more in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. I've got to tell you, this is one of those passages that I keep trying to get through. I'm like, all right, this week, surely this week we will get through this passage. And actually, I think this week we will get through this passage. I I hope so anyway. But I've got to tell you, I have more to say this week than I did the first week. It's one of those passages that just keeps pouring forth relevant truth to the day and age in which we live. The big picture, Jesus has left the ministry in Galilee, and I I apologize. I know that for many of you, this is going to be reviewed that you've heard a number of times, but the big picture is Jesus has left the Galilean ministry. He He has left the north and the northern ministry. I mean, he might visit there, but that ministry is done. He is now headed down into the Judean, the southern region. He is speaking to them and doing miracles and gathering crowds, and they are listening. And this is a new moment because this is where the religious leaders reside. This is where the temple complex is. And so as Jesus goes around the southern areas, people who have perhaps not heard of him before or heard, uh, heard what he actually had to say have been drawn to him. Jesus does in the south exactly what he did in the north. He heals people. He performs miracles, and he speaks to the people and teaches them. He generally tends to heal people, um, well, all the time, but he certainly goes out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath, which drives the scribes and Pharisees crazy. But he does it anyway because, well, one, he's God, and two, it's good to do good on the Sabbath. Why in the world wouldn't you? And it brings great attention to the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus gives a, remember he has spoken and eats with publicans and sinners to get much more current. And so the scribes and Pharisees are condemning him for that. And he proceeds to give them a couple of parables, three in fact, about how when people find lost things, they rejoice. And so Jesus follows that up with, and so in heaven, when sinners who are lost are found, all of heaven rejoices. Then he gives the parable of the unjust steward, which you'll recall the guy who basically uh, is not a, he doesn't take good care of the property of of his boss. And then when it comes time for him to give an account, he proceeds to seemingly take even worse care by forgiving the debts of all of his boss's debtors, at least a portion of it. And he's commended for it. And if you want to know exactly how that all went, you want to hear that sermon. But Jesus ends that with speaking to the crowd in front of him. No one now can serve two masters. You can't be the servant of two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot pursue God and pursue money. Those two things are going to cancel one another out. You're going to come to a fork in the road where you're either going to choose to serve God, or you're going to choose to walk away from God and do whatever it takes to get more money. You can't serve both of those. It is at this moment that we come to the beginning of this passage, Luke 14. Now, the Pharisees, who, by the way, were lovers of money, were listening to all of these things. They're they're listening to him talk about how God loves the salvation of the wicked. God loves when sinners come and repent. And the unjust steward. And then this closing statement about how you can't serve God and money. And, And they just scoff at him. 
This is ridiculous. This, this guy says to speak for God? How in the world could he possibly speak for God and make these kinds of statements? This is just impossible. This, this can't be the teaching of God. There is no way this guy can represent the true view of who God is. And so they, they scoff at him. I mean, they just flat out reject everything Jesus has to say. And so we come to this essential question. How does Jesus respond when his teaching is completely rejected? What exactly does Jesus do? There is a popular picture of Jesus that Jesus is kind of this guy with long flowing hair and a beard and mustache and robes and sandals and walks around in ancient Palestine talking about peace, love, and forgiveness. Kind of a hippie almost looking figure. And that Jesus wouldn't harm a fly. He's almost kind of a feminine and he's, he's just all for peace and love and, and kindness. And anyone who doesn't act with peace and love and kindness surely is not acting like Jesus. Well, that's why it's important that we look at what the passage actually says and that we worship the Jesus of the actual Gospels as opposed to a Jesus that we might just make up in our minds. Because what does Jesus do? Does he, does he just kind of say, well, I don't, I don't want to be offensive. I mean, I, I don't want to upset anyone. I wouldn't want to say anything that, that someone might find difficult to hear. I... Um, not so much. I don't think Jesus is angry. I don't think he says this with any kind of bitterness or malice or anger or any of those kinds of things. He just says it. And he looks at the Pharisees and he looks them right in the eye when he says it to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he speaks quite plainly and quite forcefully. And he says to them in verse 15, you are those who justify themselves in the sight of men, but God... Knows your heart. They are proud. They are self-justifying. They justify themselves. And to be justified is to be declared innocent, right? When we walk in the kitchen and we open up the top of the cookie jar and there's not a single cookie left in there and we start looking around and everyone goes, hey, hey, it wasn't me. You know, everyone starts offering justifications about how they didn't eat all those cookies. Okay, that is, you know, to justify yourself to declare yourself innocent. Okay, this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing societally. They're walking around in society saying, we're innocent. We stand before God holy. In fact, we are holier than you. We are holier than thou. I mean, these are the guys who literally say, we are holier than thou. We are righteous before all men. We know we've compared ourselves to all men, and we stand head and shoulders above all others. And Jesus says, well, you justify your sight, yourselves in the sight of men, maybe you can convince men. And I think they do. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you'd have asked his disciples, hey guys, who do you think is going to make it into the kingdom first? Well, the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, those are the guys. They're head and shoulders above everyone else. I mean, look at them. They fast more than anybody. They they give alms more than anybody, and they certainly pray longer than anybody. They stand right on the street corner and pray long enough for everyone to listen. So, I mean, obviously, these people are really godly. 
Jesus is like, you know, you justify yourselves before in the sight of men, but God, there's your heart. And what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That is, uh, that's a little confrontational. That is uh, Jesus looking them right in the eye and saying to them, you guys have a heart problem. And what you do in your heart is actually detestable to God. You may be able to justify yourselves before men, but I have news for you. You are not just before God. He goes on to say, you know, the law and the prophets were reclaimed until John. So the law and the prophets were important. They were essential. The prophets prophesied in the Old Testament, and they prophesied right up until John. John was the last Old Testament prophet. And so maybe there was not much, but some you could justify that the law and the prophets, and you're trying to keep them, you're not succeeding at it, but at least you could claim you're trying. But since the gospel of the kingdom has come, the law and the prophets have been put aside. John announced the king is coming. And guess what? The king has now arrived. And now that the king has arrived, the law and the prophets are no more. They are going to shortly be completely fulfilled in the life of Jesus. They, they're not annulled, they're fulfilled. So the moment has now come where you need to stop thinking about the law and the prophets. You guys, there's a new standard in town. And the new standard is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And everyone needs to get into the kingdom. And to get into the kingdom is going to be a difficult thing, particularly for you guys. Because the only way to get into the kingdom is like the sinners, like the immoral, like the publicans. You're going to have to admit that you are a sinner. This is going to be a hard thing to do. You are going to have to force yourself to do it. You're going to have to make yourself be clothed in humility. Whether you will or not remains to be seen, but that's what you need to do. And then he goes on to say, if you want to talk about the law and the prophets, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the smallest stroke of a letter of the law to fail. You guys think you want to serve God according to the letter of the law? You have no idea what the letter of the law will do to you. It will totally destroy you. You're going to have to keep it right down to the absolute smallest little dot of an I, or the crossing of the T. They had a different alphabet, but they had those exact same kinds of marks in their alphabet. To the smallest jot and tittle, you need to keep the law of God. Which, of course, they can't. God is not interested in your ritual. God is interested in your heart. Righteousness before God does not come from you keeping the law perfectly, which, by the way, you can't do. Remember Jesus talks to the guy who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what do you think? And the guy says, well, you know, you have to, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you have to love your neighbor like you love yourself. And Jesus is like, yeah. And the guy is like, he kind of recognizes that that's a pretty impossible standard. And Jesus says to him, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're to the place where if you just take that one last step to recognize that there is no way on the planet you can possibly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you can't possibly love your neighbor like you love yourself, and you throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, 
You know, you could actually get into the kingdom of God. You're just that far away. These guys are a little further away than that, and so Jesus is going to go one step further. He's going to go into something very specific, directed right at them. And he's going to say this. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, we're going to unpack this, and we're going to look at this, and we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. I mean, we're, we're going to. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, ooh, I'm not sure I want to sit through a sermon on divorce and remarriage. That, you know, that might actually be a little uncomfortable given my past. Um, you know, let me, let me tell you, if you're thinking this hits a little close to home, okay, Jesus is aiming for home. It's exactly what Jesus is aiming for here. Jesus is looking at the scribes and Pharisees and trying to get them to understand that their home is outside of the plan of God. Their problem is they think that they are righteous, and they're not. So Jesus goes right to the heart. And let's face it, marriage is about as close to the heart as you're going to get. Marriage is close to home. Jesus is aiming for their homes. The kingdom of God is only open to repentant sinners. So Jesus is going to go to them and point to something that they should repent of. They have a marriage problem, which we'll get into here in a second. But What we have to see is that Jesus is aiming at getting these guys to wake up to their sin. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, my marriage is, uh, uh, my marital history is, I mean, I don't talk about it much. Okay. If you've repented and you've come to God and said, Lord, I, you know, I've had some marital difficulties in the past. Okay. You know what? That's exactly where God wants people to be. It's okay. That's, that's how you get in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus is bringing this up. It's, it's, you just come to God with humility. That's what Jesus is trying to get these guys to do, to come to him with some humility. If they would just get some humility, they too could come into the kingdom of God. Everyone's a sinner. Jesus is trying to help these guys figure out everyone is a sinner. And maybe if you're sitting here thinking, well, I've never committed adultery, so maybe this doesn't apply to me. Well, you know, to you, we we might say, uh, anyone who has looked at someone who was not their spouse and said, man, we should not have been married to them. Eh, There you go. You too are guilty. Anybody here want to say they've never done that? You know, I mean, it's one of those things like, oh my. And, And that's the exact point. We are all guilty. It's when we come to God with humility that God begins to transform us. Jesus is trying to get these guys to the place where they will actually owe up to the sin which completely characterizes them. They think that the standard they have set, that they can keep it. And they think the standard they have set is we keep the law of Moses. They don't. And Jesus is going to point it out to them very clearly here in their marriage standard. Now, 
It will help if we look at the passage in Matthew. This is not concurrent. The, the passage in Matthew is it's Jesus talking to a different group of Pharisees about divorce and remarriage, but it does give us some more insight. The Luke passage is a deliberate attempt on the part of Jesus to convict the Pharisees. But we want to unpack it. The Luke passage is not the only thing that the New Testament has to say about divorce and remarriage. So the Matthew passage is in Matthew chapter 19. And what happens here is some Pharisees come to Jesus and they're testing him. And they have a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? There were two schools of thought in the, in the ancient world, in their particular culture. There were two rabbinical views on divorce and remarriage. Uh, one of them was Shammai, who said that you can only get divorced for reasons of immorality. And he would have gone back to the passage in Deuteronomy where you could only divorce your wife if you find uh, something uh, unclean, something that is... Um, that, that's just a shameful thing. It's kind of a generic term. So that's, that's uh, Shemi. Hillel said, well, you know, you should see how my wife cooks. It's shameful what she does to food. So she burnt the toast. Get rid of her. That was the view of Hillel. You should get rid of your wife if, she can't, if she's not a good cook. Those are the two views going on in the time in which the New Testament was, was happening. Clearly, the Pharisees sided with Hillel. They believed that you could, in fact, divorce your wife for virtually any reason whatsoever. It should be noted, by the way, that our society, we're worse than Hillel. Hillel, at least you had to come up with some reason. In our society, well, you've got a couple, and here they are. They've, they've stood before their friends and their family and before God, and they've come down and they've made vows. And they have vowed that we will be faithful and true to one another, that we will honor our vows to one another. We will vow to love each other and only each other until death us do part. That's how that goes when you go down and get married. You vow. You vow before God. But in our country, in all 50 states, you can get married. You can make those vows. You can, you can put together that public contract. I mean, you've gone, it's down at the town hall somewhere in one of the town offices. You've got the marriage license, and you've had it signed and filled out, and it's a contractual arrangement that you put together. And so the two of you get on with your life, and here you are going along, doing what you're doing, and uh, kind of find out all of a sudden, um, having made financial choices that you've sacrificed over, and you've mingled your finances, and you've, you've made all kinds, of, all kinds of sacrifices for the good of this marriage, You've kept your vows, you've been faithful, you've been truthful, you've done what you should do, and one day your spouse doesn't come home from work. And that seems kind of strange, because they always come home from work, and you call their phone and come to find out they're not answering their phone, and maybe you've got to find your friend on your phone and you can't find him on the friend anymore. And while you're sitting there wondering where in the world they are and if they've gotten in an accident and something has happened to them, there's a knock on the door, and when you open it up, some stranger is standing there with a piece of paper and they hand it to you and say, you are now divorced. 
or will shortly be. Here are the papers. Come to find out, the spouse with whom you have shared everything, perhaps you have children, and here you are with the house, and, and you've given up all kinds of things, and you've been faithful, and you've been true, and, and when this occurs, you're now going to be financially devastated. You're going, you're going to perhaps have to now get a job which you didn't have to before. Someone's going to have to watch the kids. I mean, suddenly your entire life is upended. Your entire life is, I mean, your spouse might as well have taken a jagged dagger and plunged it into your heart and twisted it and ripped it out. I mean, they have just emotionally destroyed you. You never even saw it coming. And then come to find out, they happily skip off with half the assets and perhaps their job, and they just go do whatever they want to do and leave you desolate, financially destitute, with the kids, the house is sold, car is sold, the assets are divided, you're devastated, they skate off free. They're completely guilty. They broke a covenantal agreement. In our country, eh, no fault divorce. We don't, we don't, want, it, we don't want it to get messy. You know, we, we, we don't want to sort out who's actually innocent around here and who's guilty. So even though you're completely guilty and even though you're, you've just totally devastated this relationship, you suffer nothing. It's unjust. It's immoral. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And so Jesus is going to look at these guys because this is a very similar thing to exactly what they're doing. And he says to them, back in the Matthew passage, when they ask, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? Verse 4, he answers, Matthew 19, 4, he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Just two, by the way. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. They become a unit. They become like one person. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. And then we get some insight into what the Pharisees' problem is. We get some insight into their, their interpretation of the Old Testament, because they're going to start talking about this Deuteronomy 24 passage. And they're going to say, well, why then did Moses give a certificate of divorce and send her away. I mean, come on. It says in the Old Testament that you can give your wife a certificate of divorce, so obviously you can, so it must be fine to get a divorce. I mean, why? They go back to the Old Testament, and they don't see the heart of the Old Testament. They're not looking to see how to save their marriage. They're not looking to see how God views marriage. They're looking to get out of their marriage. They're looking to be able to leave their wife because she burnt the toast. The minute they get a look at some other woman besides their wife and decide that they'd rather be with her instead of the woman they're with, then for any reason they can just get rid of the woman they're with and give her a writ of divorcement and go, we're keeping the law. We've got the letter of the law. And Jesus is like, you have no idea what the letter of the law is. Let me tell you the letter of the law. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Because you're hard-hearted. You're cruel. 
But from the beginning, it has not been this way. I say to you, if you divorce your wife, unless she has committed immorality, and you marry another, you're going to force her to commit adultery. She won't have any choice. You will turn her out on the street. Because you are breaking the marital vows. This is what Jesus is talking to as he gives this to them. This is the issue that he hopes is going to help them think through what they're doing. What is with you guys? Haven't you figured this out? Haven't you looked at Genesis? And of course they have. Haven't you looked at what God did? God made Adam and Eve, and they were supposed to stay together through their whole lives. You weren't supposed to be able to break up the marriage. And you think it's bad in our society when there's a marriage and you know one spouse, if it happens to be the wife who has, say, given up her career and given up any kind of employment and is now suddenly just cast aside with the kids, with no house because we sold the house, um, in, the, in this culture, for new te- first century, even worse. And this woman is going to be left destitute. Do they care? They don't care. They don't care. They kept the letter of the law, don't you know? They gave her a writ of divorcement. Why? They're not guilty. They have followed the letter of the law. Oh. Jesus goes back to the purpose of marriage. And the purpose of marriage is for two people to unite and to be together and, and to become one person. And these guys have just completely destroyed this. The purpose that Moses gave them a writ of divorcement was not so that they could get divorced. It was so you wouldn't, if the only thing left, if, if you can't have a divorce, is you're, you're going to kill your wife. So for the hardness of your heart, God gave you this. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now, when Jesus is here confronting the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, he could have picked lots of issues. Uh, We could turn to any number of passages where Jesus says to them, and and remember, we went to many of them last week, but there are others where he says to them, have you not read? Did did you guys read your Bible? You you know, it's, it's it's a pretty tough thing to say to the experts in the law. Have you not read? But he says it to them on a number of occasions. We won't necessarily go to them. So when Jesus wants to get these guys' attention, he wants them to wake up to what they're doing, he goes to marriage, this intimate relationship in which you have made vows This is so important, a relationship. This is what makes families. This is what builds culture. This is is what God uses to bring new children into the world. This is the vehicle by which the plan of God is such that you are supposed to do this so that you will build a good culture and a good society. If you look at Genesis 6, you know, the the passage there where the sons of God look on the daughters of men. And you could come up with whatever you want to come up with on that. There's a, a much discussion. But the actual issue of what happens is that there's marriage. The sons of God look at the daughters of men and marry them. And what happens is that this is a terrible situation. They should not be marrying one another. And it ends up in total societal disaster. Bad marriages, 
bad society. This is what actually precipitates the flood. They become so wicked that God has to destroy the whole place. Why does that happen? Well, because when you have this terrible view of marriage that they had, you end up with your society decaying. Look at our own nation. Here we are, right? Here we are today in a nation where the highest court in the land. This isn't some fringe group of people who just, you know, are on the internet somewhere spouting off. You know, you just kind of go, oh, those guys. No, this is the highest court in the land has ruled that two men can get married. What kind of marriage is that? When did that get to become defined as marriage? God defines marriage. They spit on the law of God. They scorn the law of God. They don't care about the law of God. In fact, they're going to use that decision to come after us. They're already using that decision to come after us. Not only are we going to decree that two men or two women can get married, and we're going to call it marriage, and not only is that going to be done, but you better be happy about it. And if you're not, we'll take your business away from you. Ask Jack Phelps, the guy who makes the cakes. He's still in court over that. Third time he's been sued over that. Because of that decision. That's the highest court in the land, folks. Those are the folks who make the laws. They don't care what God says. They don't care what the word of God says. They don't care what the plan of God is. It doesn't matter to them. And, I mean, I love America, right? I, I, I love the romantic notion I have of America, that we're a God-fearing people who keep our marital vows and strive to, to, to do right. Um, <clears throat> may we live up to that, but the reality is you have to look at exactly who's running the place, who our leaders are, and the choices they're making. And the fact that we have the blood of 60 million babies on our hands. And we have decreed our highest court in the land that it is okay to take the life of your child up to the moment before birth. It's abominable. It's abominable. That is our country. Pray for our country. Pray for our nation. Pray that we will repent. That we will wake up to what we have done. We are a wicked and adulterous generation filled with perversion, promoting it and loving it. This is who we are as a nation. And so the reason this passage is so essential, and frankly, the reason why I just can't quite get past this passage is because it speaks to us today. Jesus doesn't bring up marriage just out of the blue. He brings it up because this hits home. This is hard to hear. This hurts. Uh-huh. And it hurts because it's true. And we live in a wicked and adulterous generation. We need to repent of it. And we need to look at our nation, and we need to look at the example of Jesus, who is looking at the guys in front of him, and the question is, what does Jesus say to those who reject what he says? Well, he just keeps digging. 
it just becomes more specific. You guys think you keep the law of God? Really? Is that what you think? Well, let me tell you, if you divorce your wife and marry someone else, you commit adultery. And you cause the woman you divorce, you cause her to commit adultery. And if you marry a divorced woman, she will cause you to commit adultery. He's basically calling them a bunch of adulterers. And again, let me be clear. He's doing this so that they will repent. And this is not the full, don't, don't, this is not the full thing on divorce and remarriage. The fact is that if there is immorality in a marriage, then there is the option to have a divorce. Divorce and remarriage is a complicated subject. And I don't, my view on divorce and remarriage, I'll, I, I, I'm not going to say I won't get into it. I won't get into it. My, divorce, my view on divorce and remarriage is that you should do everything you can to keep your marriage. But the fact is, sometimes, particularly in our society, you don't have a choice. I mean, we do live in a society of no-fault divorce. The fact is, no matter how true you are, and no matter how compassionate you are and determined you are to save your marriage, maybe you, maybe you can't. Your spouse literally can just walk away if that's what they choose to do. And you're just going to get served papers. And it's going to happen. No-fault divorce. It's tragic. It's unjust. It's immoral. But it happens. It may be that maybe you were the one that had the immoral relationship. Maybe you did cheat on your spouse. Maybe they forgave you. I hope they did. Maybe your spouse cheated on you. and Maybe you forgave them. I hope you did. But the fact is that if your spouse cheats on you, you have the freedom to break. You didn't break the marriage bond. They did. And you have the freedom to pray carefully and seek God's wisdom. And if you believe that the best thing to do is to separate the marital bond, you can. And you are free to remarry. But if you're going to keep the marriage going, you'd better be ready to forgive. Don't say, all right, I'm going to forgive them. And then five years later, you spring up in some argument, but you and beat them over the head with it one more time. Okay, don't, if, you're, if you're going to keep beating them over the head with it, then you haven't really forgiven them. You need to forgive them. It's a difficult subject. It should make us all humble, which is what Jesus is trying to do here. The point Jesus is trying to make with these guys, and they were with Hillel. These guys were all on their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, who knows how many marriages. I said they weren't. They thought they were keeping the law. They weren't. They weren't keeping the law of God, and that was the exact point Jesus was making to them. It is important for us when we speak into our own society and we are confronted by people, you're confronted with the issue, say, of homosexuality. Okay, homosexuality, let's stop and think about this for just a minute. This is, this is literally a dead end. Imagine we sent 50 married couples to colonize Mars and they decided to keep quiet exactly who the hundred people were, because who knows why. They just decide to, and and they don't actually get them married until they get on the ship and take off, and then it's going to be a a publicized ceremony, and the captain of the ship is going to marry all 50 couples. And they turn the cameras on, and they're out past the moon, and we we watch, and what do you know, it's a hundred guys, and they're all gay, and they're all going to get married on the ship. 
And you know that Mars colony has been around for 20 years now, and somehow it's just not growing. We just can't quite seem to figure out what's happened here. I mean, they're all married. We've got 50 married couples out there. This isn't working. Because there's nothing wrong with pointing that out. There's nothing wrong with pointing that out. They're hypocrites to call gay marriage marriage. It's not marriage. That's not marriage. We need to speak truth. We, we need to be the people who stand up and say, God created marriage. God created the male and female. And if you're a male who thinks you're a woman, we have compassion on you and kindness on you, but the best thing we can do for you is help you understand you are a man created in the image of God. And the sooner you reconcile who you are before God, the better off life is going to go for you. Fulfill the plan of God in your life. If you're a young girl and you wonder if maybe you're a boy, you need to fulfill the plan of God in your life. The most compassionate thing we can do is speak the truth. And we have the perfect example of Jesus. Did they get mad at him? They crucified him. Why? Because he looked at them and told them the truth. Not because he hated them, not because he was angry with them, but because he wanted them to repent. Put away your self-righteousness. Stop adopting your own standard of righteousness and adopt God's standard of righteousness so that you can come to God with humility and repentance and be transformed. That's what God wants to do. That's the good news of the gospel. But it's only good news if you repent. It's great news if you'll just admit you're a sinner, which we all are. Help people figure out what a sinner they are so they can repent and come to God and be forgiven. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what we should be doing. And yes, it is difficult, and they will get mad at us, and they will seek to crucify us. Jesus said that. They hate me. They'll hate you too, by the way. Particularly if you speak truth. So, Speak truth. And you can say it as kind, be as kind as you can be. It, it, it won't matter. You can say it as kindly as you'd like. When you speak truth, they'll, <clears throat> there'll be a segment of society that'll still be very unhappy with you. Speak it anyway. This is the example of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you have left us here to be ambassadors. You've left us here to be the righteous salt to preserve society. If we won't speak, Lord, who will? If we won't say truth, if we won't declare that you are the creator, that you are the one who made male, male, and female, female, and that's the only two sexes you made. If we won't say it, Lord, who will? And if we will not stand up for truth, who will? So may we see that in your sovereignty you have placed us here at this time, at this place, at this hour. We are on the stage of life. It's our lines, and we need to speak them. It is our turn to be prophetic. It is our turn to be the one who must say to our society, they are wicked and adulterous. And though they may, like they hated you, hate us, may we say it anyway. Give us grace and boldness, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.